0: This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and
1: innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 184 Brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the enlistedboard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Uma Raja, CEO of Capital Rise, to talk about prime property financing and its broader implications for fintech. Finance has been around for so long that although the general principles are naturally the same across sectors, as each sector has a different ecology as a business landscape, finance itself ends up being heavily speciated and thus. May look quite different when we drill down into the detail. Or, but a different way, plenty of decades, if not centuries, of evolutionary adaptation of FS has meant that FS needs to have refined solutions for each particular sector, which will always outcompete generic solutions. And that's not to mention, of course, that, uh, as I vaguely recall, finance has got something to do, or lending money has got something to do with credit assessment. And, funnily enough, doing credit assessment tends to work out a little bit better when you actually really understand the business in a sector, rather than how to make your spreadsheet work. Something naturally improved by quite some time in any given sector. So, after some recent 30,000 feet episodes on the big picture, let's fly lower this week and find out how Capital Rise, who were on the show way back in 2017 have gone from strength to strength and outperformed their competitors old school or new school in this market and see what the broader relevance is if you're not in property finance. What are the transferable lessons to other fintechs? Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Uma. Thank you for joining me on the show today.
2: Good morning, Mike. I'm absolutely delighted to be on the show.
1: Yes, you're delighted and and I'm delighted too, but I'm also... Very apologetic because a very strange thing happened when we had our pod prep talk in that you suggested a rather sort of more intimate setting than staring at pixels on the screens of uh, your office. Which I absolutely lapped up the idea of going into an office, it's a very exotic idea, and going into, <laughs> uh, into London. And I have actually been in, 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 in London recently. I was in the Oriental Club yesterday, which is which very nice, I haven't been there. First president was the Duke of Wellington, actually, fourth oldest club in London. Um, anyway, that's another story. But I had to resort to much-o-grovelling. And listeners may have come across this phenomenon in different ways. When a small sort of rip in the space-time fabric appeared, and um, swallowed up something I need in life. Uh, namely, I have two long, heavy, industrial-duty cables for my recording kit, which I only ever keep in one drawer. I can't possibly use them for everything else. They have been in that same drawer for 18 months, but when I opened that drawer and turned my study upside down one had completely disappeared and it takes a little while to get one of these new cables. So that's my, that was my excuse and I'm absolutely sticking to it.
2: It's a terrible excuse, Mike. Seriously.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you can tell it's a, it's a real excuse because sort of, <laughs> A, I'd love to meet up with you.
2: You'll have to come another time. Yes,
1: exactly. And, and and B, going back to sort of not doing your homework at school, we all know that if you want to make an uh, excuse, you make it simple and plausible, you don't make it long <laughs> and complicated and know that completely didn't happen. But it is a bit of a by the by. But... Uh, uh, along with being a founder, you're also a mother, so you have to be sort of terribly well organised because you're sort of trying to keep all the plates spinning in multiple directions. But you may yourself have come across the sort of the occasional rip in the space-time fabric where something isn't where you left it and you turn over your entire study, your entire house three times and you still can't find it.
2: Sounds like something happens in my house all the time. <laughs> Probably with school socks. Main, isn't it? main culprits being my kids, though.
1: And roughly speaking, how old are your children?
2: So I have a 12-year-old girl who's just started senior school and a nine-year-old boy. So We had a lot of fun during lockdown with uh, remote learning and trying to run a business, uh, a fast growing business from my dining room, but it's, it's all good. It's all good. We've been in the office for quite a while now. Um, I think with the construction industry, it's been obviously all of the kind of uh, policies have been designed to keep the construction industry going throughout the lockdown. So our sector of the market has been you know, pretty active and a lot of us have been office or, or hybrid working throughout the time.
1: Yes I have never-ending admiration for founders whether male or female who also and many do and I think this is probably a sort of you know a, a, an age and stage kind of thing managed to combine that with having sort of young or medium-age families and I, I think it's not I think it's not just, um, insanity on, on the part of, uh, of people doing both at the same time I think there is a the kind of thing that by the time you're my age you know you have problems getting out of bed in the morning let alone <laughs> doing anything interesting or, or creating anything
2: I think also as a founder you know you need to have a certain amount of experience I think to have the confidence to do your own business and have the right experience to go and start something so it's not I don't in my view I don't think I could have done this in my 20s or even my early 30s and, you know, you get to be in your 40s and typically, you know, you've, you're at that kind of family life stage, aren't you?
1: Yes, exactly. And, you know, I have been um, glad to have some very young founders on the show who succeeded right from the, the beginning or, or like Charlie Dellingpole succeeded with a student room before he'd even gone to university. But they are very much the exception that proves the all. And going back to my sort of fascinating intro in FS and in things especially to do with credit, it does help a little bit if rather than at the age of 21, you you do you start sort of doing property finance lending. How hard can it be? I'm sure I'll work it out fairly quickly. Uh, as you say, you give it a sort of couple of decades and you really know something about all this stuff.
2: Absolutely. That depth of expertise. And I think also when you're raising money for a for a business, when you're raising equity, your investors want to know that you, you know what you're doing. You know that you've done it before. It's not your first rodeo. So it, I think it helps
1: yes indeed so talking of education you and i spent a little bit of time together although once again disconnected by a parameter in in that we spent some time together in longitude and and latitude back in the day but disconnected by the time parameter by a a few years uh, somewhere in east anglia where it's sort of very flat but actually in a a relatively small area of that east anglia and so how did you go from there to here and as you say your career journey and, and, and your experience in this area and what made you wake up one day or wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, I know what I'll do today. I'm going to form a property finance company. How hard can it be? (laughs) Was it too much cheese or something and red wine late (laughs) in the evening?
2: I'll tell you the story. So... I um, graduated in engineering. I actually went on into manufacturing industry because that's what I studied, manufacturing engineering at Cambridge. I worked for 10 years actually in a completely different sector. I was in the fast-moving consumer goods, part of the market. I worked for Mars, the confectionery company for a decade, which was amazing, a fantastic training ground. I started on a graduate training program and I learned a lot of the skills that I use now, even though I'm in a very different field now. And particularly the last five years there, I was focused on new product development. So a lot of the kind of skills around kind of understanding what consumers want research techniques how do you move to a prototype how do you then industrialize that and then launch that to the market after 10 years there I decided that I wanted to do something a bit more entrepreneurial but didn't really have the confidence to make that step straight away so I went off to INSEAD to do my MBA thinking if I get an MBA hopefully I'll feel that I've rounded off my kind of business knowledge particularly in some of the areas where I've never worked before and that I might have the confidence to maybe do my first startup out of business school which did happen so my first startup out of business school was in 2007 and that was in the fintech space. It was a payment startup, which I started that business with two uh, colleagues of mine from business school. Unfortunately, that uh, particular business didn't succeed, but I learned a lot of skills and I think I was able to kind of pivot and use what I'd learnt in a completely different industry, but use that in what was going to be the kind of fintech space. I then had my first child. And as I came out of maternity leave, I thought, you know, I love being in the kind of startup phase.
1: I'm glad you said maternity leave, you see, because plenty of people these days, and I know one, come out of maternity ward and then get on their laptop.
2: <laughs> I took a full year off with my daughter. Oh, good for you. I, I good loved you. every minute. And I highly recommend it. I think those those days are... Really precious. Um, so if you can, if you if you can, I really think it's it's important. Anyway, so yes, yeah, so I came out of maternity and I wanted to to stay in the entrepreneurial space. Um, but having been in a business that hadn't succeeded, I was kind of a bit burnt. I thought maybe I'll go to a business that's it's already kind of basically got a kind of core idea or principle and. I can help kind of develop and scale. So, uh, at that time, I joined what was a you know only twenty-person company was Wonga, uh, and I was their first product manager there. And I looked after all of the kind of I guess technology side of the business, how we were going to um, take very very old-fashioned manual underwriting processes and automate them, and we built a fully digital end-to-end digital lending process in the consumer lending side. And I was there for about five years, and in that time, I worked on our taking that and applying the knowledge into a different sector by developing our SME lending platform, which was called Everline. I built a peer-to-peer lending platform and ran that for a while. I got involved in all sorts of exciting things like international expansion and and lots of other products. So I developed, I guess, a lot of expertise and knowledge in building fintech platforms and also understanding how to scale them because I guess as a business, that business grew from you know, quite a small customer base to to a very large customer base. In 2015, I was then headhunted by Alex and Andrew, so Alex Mitchell and Andrew Dunn, who were looking to to launch Capital Rise and needed somebody with some fintech expertise to bring the idea to reality and to run the business because their day-to-day core business is running a firm called Finchatton. Now, Finchatton are a high-end property development firm. They've they've they, delivered over £2 billion worth of real estate over the last 20 years, over 120 projects that they've delivered. They've currently got £1.75 billion worth of real estate under construction. So they've got really deep expertise in the prime property space and they could see that there was a massive gap in the market when it comes to development finance. The traditional banks, as we know, have been retreating from the space since all the regulatory changes came in after the GFC. And that meant, that meant there's a kind of a big chunk of market um, in the lending market, which isn't just not being served by traditional lenders. So on the one hand, they could see there was a, a real opportunity to tackle a niche that was, that was very badly served. And we have a very specific focus, which is on prime real estate. We are still, and when we launched, we were the first real estate lender that was specially focused on prime real estate, and, and that was it. And we are still the only specialist prime property finance provider five years later.
1: Excellent. Well, I, I think you've set the world record for the sort of longest answer to what was your career. <laughs> for the benefit of listeners, you and I know each other relatively well in, in that uh, I, I don't and you may go to many um, many of these conferences. There was, it, younger listeners might want to look that up in the dictionary. <laughs>
2: what one of those is
1: yes exactly people used to congregate together amazing enough in the, in the old normal and um uh, you're normally sort of uh, as you are being sort of serious and professional and, and something like that but then uh, i managed to sort of uh, grab you and take you off piste and, and before you know it we're not we're even not talking about um, fintech actually from which of course you've derived the the, the, the quite successful uh, uh, idea that when you're talking to me the, the one thing you must never do is stop because otherwise it's quite a <laughs> Quite a long you'll fill time <laughs> yes exactly it's quite a long time before you'll get another word in edgeways excellent so well, I mean in terms of your training going back to it wasn't just a little bit of the fence it was a place that wore green and white scarves where we were very co-located a different part in in time you've had some very interesting trainings as you say Mars I don't know whether it is the same now but it was certainly back in the day very re- reputed as having brilliant management training and a sort of, you know, almost a sort of practical MBA by like learn by doing kind of stuff. I think I've heard of INSEAD and, and one or two of the uh, podcast guests have been on Inciad themselves. And as you say, actually then going out there and trying to do it, how hard can it be? And then you find that actually it's a little bit harder than, than might be imagined have all set you up quite nicely. I mean, just with a little bit of hindsight, time has gone by since then. What would you say from a strategic perspective with the sort of one or two or three Mistakes that you made with your your first fintech.
2: The first one was taking too long to launch and trying to kind of finesse the product too much, thereby sort of delaying getting it out into the market. So now I'm an absolute advocate of the kind of methodology of the lean startup and building a minimum viable product, getting out into the market as quickly as possible, and then just learn and iterate and learn and iterate. That I think was one of the key issues. We also, because we took a bit longer to launch, we ended up at a point where we hadn't quite proven product market fit, but we'd run out of money and we needed to go back and raise, but we hadn't really achieved any great results to, to give those early investors confidence that we were on to a good thing. And, and also there was a bit of bad timing as well because this was all happening at the time that Lehman's was going under and it was in the peak of that, you know, that financial crash. So I think you can't mitigate for external factors like that, but I think definitely getting out as soon as you can with skeleton of a product and from there being able to sort of iterate and test that you've got something, you know, interesting that customers want.
1: Absolutely. And um, hearing you say that reminds me that I did a shout out on the podcast earlier in the year. And I said I would, you know, very happily speak to anybody who wants a bit of advice on sort of fintech or or RFS or something like that. Just chat for half an hour and and see if I have anything to say. And um, then actually somebody uh, who I knew, uh, known for some time in the city, contacted me and well, basically, they seem to be doing exactly the same thing, spending years refining a product. Quotes in their garden shed, unquotes. And so my advice was fairly simple along the lines that, that, that you said, but um, as you all, at your age of children, start to discover over the next five years, certainly, and definitely in the next ten, and I've discovered already, there's an extent to which that, of course, as a parent, our, our advice is always completely, perfectly correct and matched for the for the child or whatever, um, but in the same way that uh, advisors and Neds find... You can have the right advice. People go, nah. They go, oh well. <laughs> You've got to learn the sort of water off a, a, a duck's duck's back kind of kind of thing because, um, yes, I, I think if you spend two or three years developing a fantastic product, that's a very dangerous thing to do because it's fantastic in your head, but actually that doesn't really matter because you're not going to buy your own product or not going to buy it in sufficient volume to to make you money. You have to produce something else. So you're completely right. Anyway, before we forget about it, uh, let's talk a bit about prime property finance and. Property finance itself is getting very bizarre, uh, as is the entire world, as we head for accelerated Great resettery. And uh, for those interested parties who haven't come across this one, uh, you might want to Google YouTube for cold fusion. I don't know what it's actually called, actually, but it was the institutional trend in the States, driven by the likes of BlackRock and others, to hoover up residential property at up to 150 percent of, of the market price, and there were some areas, I think it was Atlanta, like 98% of his own by institutions, and as a whole, off the top of my head, because I wasn't really paying attention, uh, and I'd heard about this a little bit before, uh, in the in US, some $60 billion has been spent on residential property by, quotes, Wall Street institutions, not all of whom are doing a great job of being uh, landlords, so there's a, a lot of strange stuff going on. And that, uh, along with the fact that Bill Gates is, the largest now, is now the largest farm over in, owner in America. But let's put all that to, to, to one side. Although the, I think the background to property over the next 10 years from a strategic perspective, I'd definitely be keeping an eye on this kind of thing. As we discussed when your co-founder Alex was on the show last time, prime property especially in London, where I think you're almost entirely focused or predominantly focused, Uh, you can clarify that in a second, is something in and of itself, you know, going back quite a long time to, I don't know, for the sake of argument, the sort of Arab oligarchs turning up in the 70s with their oil money. And I do not know when it was, you know, the the Russian oligarchs turning up in the 90s and noughties with their money. And there is this sort of category just slightly above the sort of uh, London fintech towers where I reside uh, in my massive mansion, of course, which is less kind of property or as it were to do with perhaps that country but it's more almost like an international currency at a, a certain stage and very fungible and, and, and very liquid and so um, you know the estate agents around the world are always putting out reports saying oh property's rising you know this year it's a good year to be sort of buying and selling and all that kind of thing but as I recall prime property as a market before we get onto the finance is almost disconnected from other types of, of property so you know for the sake of argument I don't know and you, you can tell us a little bit about the, the background to property market in the last couple of years in London but for the sake of argument last year residential property may have actually in fact been going down but prime property could have still been going through the roof and so it, it really is a very different t- kind of market.
2: It is so the prime property sector is um, you know completely different to the rest of the property market it has its own property cycle its own dynamics the people that are trading in this part of the market, you know, are just fundamentally different types of people with different things that impact them, you know, relative to the rest of the market. And that's one of the reasons why we love it as an asset class. So, just to give you an example, well, let's talk about what, what we mean by Prime first. So, we focus on Prime Central London, and that narrows down to really a handful of areas, um, you know, Knightsbridge. Belgravia, Mayfair, Chelsea, those sorts of areas. We look at Prime Outer London and there's very specific areas that sort of fall under that category. So that's where we'll look at loans in in Wimbledon, Richmond, Hampstead, Highgate, for example. We then look at the prime home counties, Wentworth, Windsor, Ascot, Beaconsfield, these sorts of areas. So we're looking at prime locations in the southeast of England, that's what we target in terms of our loan book.
1: On the prime word what's the kind of property value that makes it prime? So for example for people who may live miles and miles away you can't buy a a, just an ordinary undetached house for all I know in Clapham for less than a million these days which has gone massive property inflation since the past few decades, of course. What makes it prime? Obviously, not one million, because most of central London's over a million. Ten million, a hundred million.
2: So it varies. So some of the definitions are, are tip- as easy as just the top five percent in terms of house prices in an area is one definition of prime. So you know, if you're looking at, you know, let's say Beaconsfield, that's going to be very different if you're looking at Mayfair. So it isn't a set value, but super prime is considered ten million plus. So anything where the individual asset value is, is worth 10 million or more, that's considered super prime. And then prime is anything that in the top 5% in terms of asset value in that location.
1: In passing, because we can come back to capital rise later, but just to give listeners an idea, the kind of loan sizes that you're doing range from what to what?
2: The smallest loan we'll do will be around a million. Our average loan size, typically around kind of five, six million. We really target that kind of one to 20 million loan size but the the majority of our book is in that one to ten million loan size
1: and roughly speaking just so people get an idea of uh, of, of the scope of your operations roughly speaking in the quotes average year, whatever average means how many loans will you be dishing out
2: because our loans are bigger we tend to focus on you know fewer loans but larger loans so one or two a month of you know five to ten mil typically last couple of loans you know sort of in that kind of five to 10 million kind of category. To date, we've lent against assets worth over 480 million in terms of asset value.
1: Certainly, historically, this has been a a brilliant sector to be in because of the international nature. I mean, London as a whole, is pretty much of an international city these days uh, anyway. In terms of the strategic outlook, like many things at the moment, there's all sorts of crazy things going on the world one way or another. And one can imagine all sorts of scenarios for five years hence, you know, there's a certain extent to which, um, and let's hope this blows over, but the the, U, the UK seems to be copying Australia and New Zealand in terms of trying to be a sort of uh, an island and uh, bring up the barriers and all that kind of stuff, as opposed to, say, sort of Switzerland, where you, you, you can go what you like. So, you know, there is a chance that uh, and i hope it doesn't happen but th- there is a chance that uk gets more sort of island-like and less international over time which m- which may impact it but equally people who sort of uh got 10 million properties will probably flying on a private jet anyway rather than queuing up at uh uh getwick so just in terms of the medium term outlook are, are, do you have any concerns about prime property or do you think it's quotes as safe as houses ha, ha. see what i did uh, there
2: yeah i mean it'd be good to t- just talk through i mean the, the pandemic's been a great example of how resilient our, our part of the market is and how um you know how strong the appeal of london real estate is always has been and continues to be so one of the reasons why we really like the part of the market we focus on is because it is the most resilient part of the uk property market so if you look at savile's data going back since Records began, and you plot house prices in Prime Central London, you compare those to London overall, and you compare them to the whole of the UK property market. At the end of every single downturn since records began, Prime Central London will bounce back significantly faster than the London market and the UK market, up to three years faster in terms of recovery. And one of the reasons for that is because the people that trade in these sorts of postcodes are. You know they are the wealthiest people both domestically and internationally. So, you know, if prices start to fall, then you know they don't really need to sell, so they'll sit on their hands and wait till the market starts to turn and then they'll start trading again. So, it's very different to the sort of dynamics in the mainstream market. And COVID has just proven it again. So, the prime market has been incredibly resilient throughout COVID, and transaction levels have been good, even though international travel has been really challenged and you know it hasn't re- really reopened. Night Frank data. Shows that in the last twelve months, up till May, you know, there was moderate house price growth in that time. So it's been really very resilient throughout COVID as well. And I think the reason for that is, you know, London is a very attractive proposition in terms of you know wealthy people have many different things they can invest in and you know owning an asset in london is is you know very attractive people come here because of the education system you know very sensible legal system whether it's the culture i know we haven't been to the theater recently and we haven't been to restaurants very much but you know all of that has incredible appeal the education system people wanting to educate their kids the language the time zone you know being placed sort of in the middle as it were between Kind of, you know, the U.S. and and the Far East. So, you know, there are lots of reasons why people love to own property in prime central London. Really, it's competing against, you know, other global s- spots like whether it's New York or Singapore or you know Hong Kong. It really does hold its own.
1: Yes, and London is also uh, a bit quieter than it was. And uh, going back to n- not many tourists uh, are crazy enough to come here. Be isolated for weeks, no 100 tests. But uh, I happened to walk back to Victoria yesterday past Buckingham Palace and I've never seen it so dead still. I mean there are about sort of six tourists who are hardy enough to sort of um, put up with all the the rigmarole so that's quite quiet and you know it's a different topic but I'm glad I'm not in commercial property right now because certainly if you're in commercial property in your management meeting you might actually think of a sort of a a pessimistic scenario (laughs) around offices and all that kind of kind of stuff. Um, So I think there's going to be some interesting feedback loops here because uh, I'm not entirely sure the sort of Conservative Party will actually remain in one piece if they actually destroy commercial property uh, in London over the the next few years And so therefore this of this whole attitude has to change, but there's lots of things going, but anyway let 's just put that to one side because I want to look at the prime property i 'm just pointing it out that, that it's, it's a very different thing it's very easy to think about it as all oh, big expensive properties, but they are addressing different purposes now, in terms of um the financing, as I was saying that you know having talked about the sort of the, the sector and some of the dynamics of the sector, when you get down to it and you're doing property lending, is it different types of loan or is it much more that actually it's just the fact that you've got superior credit skills, which means that you can outperform to some sort of average person quotes, just lending money in general.
2: In terms of the types of loans we offer, you know, it is similar to the kind of mainstream market. We offer bridging loans, which will help acquire a site. We offer development loans, which will help you develop out a site. And that's everything from light refurbishments to ground up developments. Although as you can imagine in prime central London, typically you're looking at refurbing existing stock rather than there's not a lot of new build opportunity. And we do sales period loans. So that's where we'll go in and we'll refinance an existing development lender out. The project is now de-risk so we can offer the borrower a you know whatever it is a 6 to 12 month sales period loan to give them more time to to sell their assets so the the product types are the same the difference really it comes with the underwriting so you know we play in a part of the market where you really do need specialist knowledge to really understand the assets that you're lending against and having the, you know the, the founding team that we have You know has that really in-depth knowledge so you know for example the guys will when we look at every opportunity you know they remember you know they remember what Eaton Square was trading at after the GFC they know which side of the road you need to be on and you know this asset here no we would never lend on that one because it's impacted by tube noise for example so we have a lot of micro location knowledge having been in this prime property market for such a long time and that means that we can I guess avoid Flaws that uh, you know, maybe a, a lender that doesn't have that experience is sitting in their office in Canary Wharf and yeah, you know, looking at a spreadsheet and doing a bit of research. You know, they may not have that kind of in-depth knowledge. And also, as developers, you know, having developers on credit committee. We're able to scrutinise what the, our potential borrowers are planning to do. We're able to scrutinise those plans, their budgets, their timelines, because through the founders' actual hands-on experience, they know, having delivered these projects themselves, you know what is realistically achievable, what sales values are realistically achievable on that corner of that street in, in Mayfair. Um, so that is the, really that kind of in-depth knowledge that makes a massive difference in terms of granting loans, the types of loans we do, versus if we were, you know, doing mainstream loans out in the regions, for example.
1: Yes, and you know, of course, London, with its sort of centuries of history, is, is a very different market even from someone like New York, where you know a lot of buildings were built a sort of 100 years ago, but not many were built 400 years ago. And you know, hearing you talk, it, it's interesting how people who really know their stuff accumulate the most amazing memory of. Detailed history, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of MotoGP as a, as, a, as a parallel example. Where I never cease to be amazed whether it's the commentators or the riders, they'll say, Oh, yes, and in 2012 on turn three, a uh, Magello, this guy went wide, you know, and crashed, or something like that. So, this kind of detailed knowledge, especially in a market like London, it's not you know, lending in Milton Keynes or, or Coventry, which is roughly speaking flattened in the Second World War and therefore had to sort of be rebuilt from scratch. So, that detailed knowledge of the marketplace is uh, no doubt essential for getting a good credit track record. And I think off the top of my head, your credit track record is pretty good, isn't it?
2: Uh, yeah, we we it's spotless, really.
1: She says touching wood. I'll touch wood on your I behalf. Know,
2: yeah, please do. So no, all of our loans have repaid as expected. Um, and we've had no investment losses or investment defaults since inception. Um, and we weathered the COVID storm very well. I mean, In the last six months or so, we've had—I mean, to date, we've repaid back to investors around 55 million, um, and of that, about over 20 million that was in the last six months. On development loans that were all COVID impacted, and I think it's been a great test of our loan book that all of those loans have performed despite the fact that they had to. You know, many of those projects suffered delays. I mean, it was very difficult for developers at the start of the lockdown, figuring out what to do, implementing social distancing. They had issues with getting materials. And supply of materials was an issue, and yeah, you know, there, there was a lot of stress at the beginning. But you know, they, fantastic. You know, we worked with some fantastic borrowers. Um, we built plenty of a buffer into the loans, you know, we make sure we have plenty of contingency when we structure the deals because we know that, you know, it's inevitable there'll be some delays. It's inevitable there'll be some cost increases. So, you know, we do build in good buffers and contingencies to protect ourselves. Um, to protect everyone, you know, to protect the borrower and protect our investors. And that put us in really good state to kind of manage the, the impact of COVID. So that's been great, actually. It's been a good test of the loan book.
1: Yes. And um, it makes me think, going back to the speciation of the nature of finance in a particular sector, one of the parameters in terms of having a loan portfolio. And I'm thinking recently of a, an interesting episode where we were talking about inventory monetization, which has a lot of operational risk and, and need for operational management of it is to the, take, the sake of argument you're lending sort of you know 10 million dollars to ibm you don't have to monitor ibm very much in the meantime and you know and you've lent the money and it's going to come back in three years time in a, in a different sort of sector um you mentioned development finance which um i'm sure this is formally not correct but it has the same kind of thing which is a kind of project finance in a way uh, if you're on the case of project finance then i would assume that much closer eye needs to be kept on how things are going and you know, how it can be impacted and mitigation and all that kind of stuff. And it, it, al- it almost must have a kind of a semi-equity character in that if you gave a 10 million equity investment in a, in, in a company, you'd want to be at the board meetings and finding out how things are going on and trying to head off problems soon and all that kind of stuff. So there exactly must be some right. kind of equity-ish nature to the, to the lending that you're doing.
2: So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So loan monitoring is absolutely critical. And when the pandemic first hit, the first thing we did was kind of when we already have very robust loan monitoring processes, and we sort of doubled the frequency of which we did everything and under normal running. So you know, we were typically in contact with our borrowers on a weekly basis, we had formal management reviews every two weeks. Um, And what that meant was that we knew exactly what was going on on site on all of our development sites. One of the benefits of the fact that we do larger loans and where we focus is that, you know, I have a few, I have a small number of loans relatively speaking to monitor. So I can put a lot more energy into it. I can be all over those loans and able to take action proactively. So, you know, with a development project, you know, you will know whether you are on track or not. You know, every month our project monitor goes in and is measuring, you know, Is this on track? Are they on budget? Is it on program? Or does it look like something, you know, is slightly over? And then you can you then say, okay, it looks like something's going to be, you know, maybe they need an extra time. So you take action straight away. Does it look like, you know, their initial exit strategy might have been sale of the property? If it looks like that's not going to happen because there's not enough time in the loan facility for that to happen, we then work with the borrower, so maybe what we need to do is you know, find someone to refinance us out. Once you reach practical completion, you go off and get a sales period loan and use that to redeem us. So, you know, a lot of the loans that we, we did during COVID, we had to work very carefully with the borrower to find an alternative, a backup plan if you like, because their original exit strategy when we wrote the loan was clear that it wasn't going to deliver. So it does take, you know, it's not just about, you know, understanding the credit at the beginning when you give, you know, when you grant the loan, it is about active management of that loan from the moment the money leaves the door until that loan comes home. And that's absolutely critical.
1: So that's very interesting in terms of um, the lower down parameters about how operationally involved one needs to be in the financial transaction that one's done. I guess the extreme is not the loan to IBM but the extreme is doing a bond deal and you do the bond deal and they've got the bond and the money's gone you know you then sort of um, forget about it and you're the opposite end and interestingly as you say going back to Wonga uh, roughly speaking they were at the antithetical end of financing and and loans in that they as as I recall roughly speaking lent zillion loans out of a sort of you know a tiny 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 bit uh, in itself and and a computer would sort of track it all and work out who the good borrowers and all that kind of stuff so there's a spectrum from that kind of approach to where you are. So, having talked uh, in the intro about these highly technical phrases that you'll probably recognize from your inside MBA of old school and new school, what is the sort of kind of topology of people working in your sector? Are you predominantly up against megabank like, I don't know, Citigroup or HSBC, uh, or, or there are sort of hundreds of, uh, of fintechs or the lots of sort of fund managers? I mean, uh, how does it sort of roughly speaking look?
2: In terms of pure lending, there aren't any other specialist lenders targeting prime. So we occasionally will come across traditional bank lenders, you know, who will lend in, uh, you know, the postcodes that we look at. But it's always as part of a broader portfolio because they serve the whole market. But there isn't really anyone out there that is targeting our specific niche. We are still, I guess, you know, unique in terms of our focus.
1: Excellent. And I got the impression that you're quite optimistic about prime property. I don't know whether I'm reading in too much to what you're saying there, but uh, how do you see the future going, given that the future could be all sorts of things right now?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think we um, just to give you an idea, Mike, you know, last year we saw such a surge in demand for finance. So last year we screened over five and a half billion pounds worth of loan inquiries that was up from about three and a half billion the year before. Wow. And one of the reasons is that just, you know, everyone (laughs) is consumer behavior. Right. So everyone has been stuck in their houses for unprecedented amounts of time. And that is forcing people to think, you know, for people that were thinking, oh, you know what, maybe we'll move out and, um, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have a bigger house or do we need more outdoor space? You know, there's a lot of things that people have suddenly decided to kind of accelerate their plans and make decisions to move or acquire additional assets in our part of the market. And that has really stimulated demand for finance in, in our sector, whether that's the move out to get more space, whether it's, you know, more indoor space, whether it's wanting a home office, whether it's thinking, you know what, I don't think I'm going to be in the office five days a week anymore. So why don't we move out a bit further and I'll buy myself a pied de terre near the office, walking distance to the office for the two or three days a week I'm in the city. Repurposing of assets, that's another one. So we've talked a bit about the prime residential market, which is where we focus. But we've had people come to us with projects where they've got an office asset and they want to convert it to residential or a hotel asset they want to convert to residential. So you've got this kind of repurposing of assets also going on as well. And all of that together has you know i think you know really created a real demand you know a real spike in demand i'd say for finance in our sector and the other reason why you know we're very positive about prime is is just we're in, we're at a very interesting point in our cycle so prime central london I don't know whether you know, but it actually has been in decline since the end of 2014. So prices are now around 20% below peak, which means that it's a very attractive time for investors to invest and for developers to purchase with a view to, you know, renovating and and, and selling this asset when it's finished in, say, 18 months time. Um, so it's a really attractive point in the property cycle to be kicking off projects. So that also has, has caused, caused you know um, stimulus as well. So yeah, it's a very, very important time. Really interesting time in the market for us.
1: Great. Okay, so before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there. My brand partners for the podcast, Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then list resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today right um so sometimes guests don't mention too much about their business when they're doing it but i think we've mentioned capital rise once or twice so i think <laughs> listeners may have a little bit of a, a, an idea about what you do you're obviously a, a great and mighty company right now um, what do you need over the next sort of uh, couple of years to make you even greater and mightier
2: Yes, I guess the key things in our business just to keep scaling. So the business is growing very fast. We've more than doubled in the last 12 months. And we're just looking to continue to grow. So if we're any borrowers out there that are looking to do property projects in any of the prime locations that I've mentioned, then we'd love to kind of quote for terms on any debt that they're looking for. And also looking to continue to grow our investor base, both institutional and individual investors, we can accept high net worth and sophisticated investors. And just to give you a bit of a feel, you know, to date, we've repaid over Fifty-five million back out to our investors with an average rate of return of nine percent per annum since inception. So, and that's always secured over a, a prime property asset. So, whilst we've never had to enforce on security on a, on a single loan, if we did, then you know we know that we've got a, a, a very high quality real estate asset we could sell in order to repay our investors.
1: I see. And when you say investors, we haven't actually sort of spoken uh, about the sort of where the money comes into your business. I, I assume you don't have a sort of letter set in the corner where you sort of print pound notes. Actually, pound notes don't exist. That shows how old well I am. <laughs> oh, you print five pound notes and then you go and give them give them out. Do you sort of uh, borrow money wholesale or do you actually have a, a mutual fund or mutual funds? How does that bit work?
2: Yeah, so we have lots of different sources of finance. I guess one of the sources of capital, one of the strategic and so it's very important strategically for us is that we have a range of different sources of capital. I don't want to be overly reliant, overly reliant on just one source. So we have a crowdfunding platform where individual high net worth and sophisticated investors can invest in our loans. And that's, I guess, the original genesis of capitalized.com. That's that's our kind of core, a uh, really core part of our business. And then we have then supplemented that with institutional capital, which can take the form of we've got bank funding lines, we've got family office funding lines, we work with wealth managers, there's a range of different other alternative sources of capital that we can always, always use as well, particularly if we're doing larger loans, where you know we need a, a decent chunk from an institution in order to top up what we'll be t- getting from our platform.
1: Excellent. Well, we started with your considerable experience in many dimensions and experience never goes to waste if you find a way to recycle it. And it's a great pleasure to be talking to a, a fintech that pretty much dominates its sector in fintech, which is easier said than done. And in terms of meta takeaway points, I think one of them is if you keep speciating down enough and you accumulate considerable expertise, then Going back to you, you did payments in the past and I've had lots of payments firms on on, on the show and a lot of them are brilliant. But it's very easy for people to start businesses in in a huge area and go, oh, it's a huge market. I mean, not the prime property is small, but there's something to be said for speciation and being really good at, oh, I don't know for the sake of arguments, Persian chicken cuisine as opposed to, you know, we do cooking kind kind of thing. And you have a phenomenal record to date. I shall keep touching wood on your behalf that it remains phenomenal going forward. Not many people lending money managed to keep getting it all back um, based on my little bit of experience in FS. And I wish you every success in the future.
2: Thank you very much, Mike. It was an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contact, in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today. Contact me at mike at If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman
0: We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance we could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moonrise Watching a happy moonrise good goodbye watch the firelight dance with me 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 watch the light, dance